Uh, welcome to Beastie Theories. I'm your host, Andy McGrath. And today we have a, a really special guest, Jean St. Jean. Uh, Jean St. Jean is a musician turned sculptor who began his career in a small upstate New York toy sculpting studio, doing mostly preschool toys and dolls. Five years later, he joined McFarlane Toys, quickly assuming the mantle of sculpting, super, uh, sculpting supervisor. In 2004, he forged Jean St. Jean Studios LLC, offering sculpting, painting, and prototyping. He's worked on such properties as Diamond Select, Stargate, and Battlestar Galactica toy lines, Batman 1966 figural busts, Marvel statues and action figures, Universal Monsters and Monsters action figures, and Sin City toys. He's also contributed to product lines for such properties as World of Warcraft for DC, Direct Blizzard and Thundercats, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street for Mexico toys, Creature Replica is his first foray to an original Toyland, Pot. Led up with Jeffrey Bears, Nick Epley, and Craig Deere of Pan Illinois. Uh, his creature, uh, creature replica action figure designs and his original creature busts and statues under Gene's Agent Studios represent decades of interest in the pursuit of the world's most elusive creatures, capturing their folkloric images in three dimensions to create the world's most realistic cryptozoological sculptures. Now, welcome, Gene. How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I do apologize for tripping all of your intro there, but there's a lot of tongue twisters in that bio. So. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't realize you were going to read the whole thing. <laughs> well, I thought just let's just give them everything, you know, and give you some questions that are not related to that. Then you know, let's just get it out of the ballpark. But as a as a sort of a, a lispy sort of slurry English guy, that was a, a real challenge, but an impressive challenge to say the least. Um, now. Yeah, just to start off, you know, a lot of people are probably familiar with the work uh, that you do without knowing that it's you that does it. So just start us off from your beginning in the genre, what initially made you want to be an artist? Uh, well, since I was a little kid, I always uh, messed around with drawing and stuff. My father was a commercial artist, so he uh, he tried to keep me, direct me away from artwork as a way to make a living. But um, I didn't really... Uh, I kind of I started out in engineering and I just didn't write, really like it at all. So I ended up uh, I got a degree in classical piano and minored in percussion and composition. And uh, <clears throat> so I I did a lot of band stuff. I wrote some like background music for a couple small commercials and things like that. I taught piano lessons, played organ at church, pretty much did everything that you're average musician does to try to have a couple of nickels rubbed together in their pockets, you know? And uh, then I got into sculpting kind of as a hobby. Around 1989, when the Burton Batman film came out, I, uh, I got back into comics and collected toys a little bit. And uh, <clears throat> I started doing a little bit of custom work just for fun on superpowers figures. And then I, uh, I had been working in addition to all my music stuff, the thing that was really bringing in my living is I worked as a butcher. So oh, wow. I ended up splitting from that job and I found a job as an apprentice at a sculpting studio and they did mostly dolls and preschool stuff. And uh, so I was kind of the mold maker slash grunt in that studio for a few years. And then I started sculpting there. And after five years, <clears throat> I um, sent in a portfolio to McFarland. They, um, They've been advertising in the back of the Spawn comic that they wanted graphic artists and sculptors and things. So sent in my portfolio and they sent me a request to come down to the studio. So I did a 
kind of a tryout piece for him, a Medusa from the Spawn 13 wave. And wow. then, <clears throat> then they made an offer for me to come down there full time. So I relocated from upstate New York to upstate New Jersey. <laughs> and uh, I stayed with those guys for, uh, I was there almost seven years, like six and a half years. Wow. Within the first couple of years, they kind of put me in charge of the sculpting department. It was like all of a sudden, I started noticing that my name would appear in magazines as the sculpting supervisor. So I asked my boss, I was like, so, you know, what's up with this? <laughs> I said, I just learned that I'm the sculpting supervisor. Does this come with a commensurate raise? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, eventually. So he was basically like, look, everybody comes to you for questions rather than come to me. So I figured I'd just make you a charge because they're not going to ask me anyway. Wow. So, yeah, so I worked with those guys for a while. And then uh, <clears throat> when I decided to leave there, um, I got a call from Chuck Terciera, who runs Diamond Select Toys for Diamond Comics, and started working with those guys and also DC Direct and <clears throat> a couple of other companies. And um, from that point on, that like I think, I think I told you in the bio thing there, that was around 2004. So I've been doing that ever since as an independent entity. You know, there's certain companies like I do tons of stuff with Diamond. I've done a lot of work with DC and some stuff with Mezco and whatnot. But uh, predominantly, I mostly work with Diamond because they have a ton of work for me. I do. Uh, I'm a consulting art director for them also. Wow. And do a lot of stuff in conjunction with their shows and things like that. We used to do some uh, kind of like uh, product preview kind of things before Toy Fair and panels at San Diego Comic-Con, New York Comic-Con. So, you know, so that's what I've been doing for basically for the last 20 something years, 24 years or so, I've been making a living as a sculptor, which is strange. I never, I never had any intention of going into art, but just the icky part of it, getting sucked into comics and toys again. And then it was like, well, I already cracked all this crap. So if I can make it, then I could make mm -hmm. a living doing it and then it's also feeding the beast it's also going to pay for my comic toy do you, do you think that's something that generally speaking when you you are successful at such a, a specialized profession nearly everybody that you meet in that industry although they've worked hard to get there they've kind of fallen into the success that's not to take away from any artistry or hard work that goes into it but do you think there's an element of chance that comes along with it yeah absolutely i mean my whole career in this stuff was a complete fluke you know literally the the tip-off was the that burton film you know i was still doing the music thing heavily uh, and i would i'd take the train down to the city to pick up tickets for like shows we were doing down in brooklyn or queens or wherever and before i got on the train i'd grab some comics across the street with the uh, newspaper stand and gradually i got more and more sucked into that and once I got the day job actually doing sculpture, then I started spending more of my nights working on what I was learning at work during the day. And then for a while, it became like 50-50 between the music thing and the artwork. And then gradually, as I started to be more successful at it, which it just kind of happened on its own. Turn this crazy ass noise down on my phone. Um, it just sort of happened on its own. Every opportunity that 
just sort of popped up out of the blue. Like the Spawn thing was bizarre. I was I, I was working on some indie comics with a friend of mine, and he had just given me his whole Spawn comic collection because he was sick of them or whatever. So I was sitting in my girlfriend's living room going through them and reading Spawn comics and just happened to come across the ad for them looking for sculptors. You know? And it just happened that one of the guys that did fabrication for the doll studio I worked for had done fabrication on the first Spawn line. So I had a guy that, you know, that had a, an in there. And that's kind of the way it's always been. Every every opportunity has kind of presented itself at just the right time uh-huh. happened for me without me doing anything other than, you know, doing the best I can at the work, you know, whereas, so it felt like a natural progression when I was doing the music thing. I worked just as hard, but nothing came of it. It was, you know, yeah. a dead end at every... <laughs> at every well, I, I was a singer for... Uh, well, I, now in my 31st year of being a singer. And, uh, you know, we started very young doing biker festivals. So my parents got us. They were part of this club. And we were like a Led Zeppelin and uh, Six Pistols and Early Guns and Roses kind of cover band. We were just 12-year-old kids. Mm-hmm. The bikers loved us. And we just went on from there to try to become professional musicians for a long, long time. And it's just, I would say, uh, this cryptozoology thing for me has happened very easily. And it was just a, a side love that I never thought would happen. Similarly to yourself. And yet the music thing, it didn't matter how good you are, how hard you tried. It's just an awfully hard business to get into. Awfully, awfully hard. So I, I feel a real know um a real relation there to that point that you're making i did have a side question on on that for you actually and i wonder what your opinion is on this so you're you know you're a musician turned sculptor in in a in a sense mm-hmm. now i've been thinking of writing a blog recently about the correlation between former musicians turned cryptozoologists because when i was at CryptidCon in kentucky last year there was a like a rock and rap karaoke afterwards Mm-hmm. And nearly half of the speakers and people and vendors who'd been there went up and performed, and everybody killed it. I think I did Radiohead's Creep or something, but everybody else killed it as well. They were obviously, and you found out as you talked to them, they were all former musicians or current musicians. So, is there some correlation? You know, former musicians turned artists, as far as you're aware of. Do you meet lots of artists in your industry and find out that they were, like yourself, you know, professional musicians for a time? Yeah, I'd say there there is an inordinate amount. I think there is some sort of correlation. I think it has to do with creative process in general. That I think if you maybe have one, like whether it's writing or me or acting or uh, 2D art, 3D art. In music, I think it probably comes from the whole kind of same pool mm-hmm. of creativity, and you may be you may be better at one thing than another. You know, it's like with with me with music. You know, I've I've worked so hard at at I started playing when I was like six or seven, and you know, I've always worked very hard at it, and never really felt like I quite got where I wanted to be. Well, I knew I hadn't gotten where I wanted to be personally, yeah, but thanks. you know. The opportunities and things just didn't come. I maybe could have followed the career differently or whatever. I didn't really want to teach in a parochial school or something like that. Like most of my friends went into music teaching, you know. I couldn't see myself doing that. Whereas 
from the first day I started doing the sculpture stuff, I was I had a little bit of a background in art, like because I inherited abilities. My father and all his brothers basically were able to draw or paint or whatever they wanted. And it was just so much more natural, you know, and just but even more still like I never really felt I was particularly good at drawing. But when I got into sculpture gradually, because I'm I'm an obsessive person, if I want to learn something, I will completely immerse myself in it. And it clicked with this stuff, you know, and it wasn't like a quick transition. But um, once I got my sea legs, I mean, you know, and while I was still going um, kind of 50-50 between music and sculpture, I noticed that even if I took a few months off from music and spent all my time in sculpture or vice versa, one would sort of feed the other. I could go mm -hmm. back to the piano and I wouldn't have lost too much dexterity and or i could go back to sculpture it was almost like they would sort of continue to grow just in relation to the amount of time i was putting into that reading you know it's a strange thing but there does seem to be a lot of people that do most or all of those things their their specialty may be in one area or two areas but mm -hmm. um i definitely see an awful lot of it I, th I think that that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, in fact, again, with the music shutdown, whenever I, I had a little shutdown with music, especially after I had children, um, I would go through months or maybe even a year sometimes of just writing children's books constantly. These stories just popping out. And I couldn't write any lyrics or I couldn't create any songs for that whole period of time. But non-stop children's books and ideas and, and that seems to have proceeded now in favor of this you know monsters thing which um sort of, sort of kind of seems like a bit of a hobby gone wild uh at the moment which is, i think it's a very strange thing but i'm following it and obviously you followed that yourself and it, it's led you to a place where you're most comfortable Mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. Now, my initial introduction to your, to your work was actually uh, at the International Cryptozoology Museum. I saw your Mothman model there, All right, which cool. I uh, was commissioned by Small Town Monsters for the Mothman of Point Pleasant. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I've I, you, uh, done a few pieces with Seth for his Kickstarter. Well, I was wondering about, there's a new one, I, I believe, that you've done for them recently. Can you tell us a, a bit about that one? Yeah, um, usually as he's planning out his year's movies, me and him talk about what might be the best choice for a Kickstarter incentive piece. So this year it's going to be the Missouri monster, MoMA. That's uh -huh. an interesting one because there's, there's not a ton of witness description to really flesh something out, you know, completely like, you know, like you can like, uh, you know, Sasquatch from Patterson. Yeah film or something or just the amount of folklore on that particular version of the creature but um you know the main the main things that i came across when i started doing research on it was uh they described it as having a big head and um possibly like uh an abnormal number number of digits on the feet uh -huh. and beyond that i mean there wasn't there didn't seem to be a lot of uh a lot of information Although I still have to read Lyle Blackburn's book that he just put out. Yeah, I was, yeah, that's another correlation. I've actually just published Lyle's interview, and I love all of his books. 
Mm. But, uh, but did you say you have read that, or you've based it upon Lyle's book and his description? No, I haven't even read it yet. I as as far as I've uh, all I've heard from him on is I heard the interview he did with Seth as Seth was editing his movie down and Lyle's book was getting ready to come out. So I haven't read it yet. But um, the little bit that I read online, I started to get a pretty clear, clear picture of what I wanted to do with it. So I tend to look at cryptozoology. To me, I want it to become zoology instead of cryptozoology. So that mm. eventually, these creatures eventually, hopefully the ones that are more believable, like Sasquatch is a relatively reasonable hypothesis. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. there. Other, the biggest problem with Sasquatch is um, distribution and location and scale. I mean, it's bigger than anything really that in that type of uh, phenotype, you know, like gorillas, chimps don't get that big. You know, they, <clears throat> you have the Gigantopithecus theory but they're still not really sure whether that was bipedal or quadrupedal mm. and or even if the molar size which suggests skull size even relates to body size it could be a creature yeah. with an inordinately large skull so it may not be nine ten feet tall you know so there's a lot about it that's uh kind of loose very loose speculation <clears throat> so this but still there's enough in terms of witness folklore that you can build on. So with Momo, I kind of got an idea of, okay, so this creature has kind of a large head. What would be a medical anomaly that would lead to an inordinately large head? So there are things like hydrocephaly. Mm. Was it, uh, or mega, yeah, hydrocephaly, when they have uh, like water on the brain or something, the head yeah. starts disproportionately yeah. large. And I figured if you combine, if you went that far, Maybe if you had creatures in a smaller population, there would tend to be a certain amount of inbreeding and you, you would mm -hmm. get um, asymmetrical um, uh, mutations, things like different number of fingers and stuff like they had in some of the different tribes in uh, Africa and stuff like that. So, that's like the, the bird feed people. That's, um, yeah, that's exactly yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's a classic sign of inbreeding, mm -hmm. uh, extra or fewer digits. Right, so recessive genes and mutations tend to keep producing, and and they become more extreme as they reproduce more and more. So, so I decided, okay, in order to make this different than just a, a regular Sasquatch, I would give him fewer digits, so he's going to have three fingers on his hands and feet. He'll have the also the opposable toe, more like a gorilla. So I'm combining some couple of things there. He sort of has more Yeti-ish type feet or gorilla type feet and less digits on his hands. And also one arm and hand will be disproportionately larger than the other. And some fingers will be webbed together. His face is a little lopsided and he has a lot of strange lumps on his head the way it's, uh -huh. it's not, it does, hasn't grown out like a regular skull with the normal vaulting of a skull. Uh -huh. So, and then they described um, that his hair was down in his face, was shaggier than more of a close cropped looking um, Pacific Northwest West Squatch. So he's going to have more mangy, longer f fur like on the forearms and, you know, coming down his face like in the uh, initial sculpt that I showed. So 
basically I try to take like even with the creature replica stuff, <clears throat> I base everything on witness testimony and folklore. And then I sort of blend it together with my own aesthetic to come to a conclusion. I mean, obviously, if you're doing a Sasquatch, you can't you can't make it. Well, we did do a bunch of different heads, but you know, you've got like a more human appearance. You have some of them with a human nose, some of them with more of an ape-like nose. At some point, you got to choose something like what's going to be like for creature replica. What is our phenotype for Bigfoot going to be? So what I try to do is distill down for our main Redford Sasquatch, sort of that that Patterson Gimlin esque Pacific Northwest Sasquatch. So it would have a human nose, but it'd be a little more squashed flat, face uh -huh. flatter than a than an ape, but would still have ape like features. Would show more of the uh, the whites of the eyes rather than completely black like an ape. So it would have just enough of the human aspect, but still this kind of hulking body. You know? And, uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting when we first started doing uh, Bigfoot conventions, we'd have people come up, say, you know, you'd get both ends of the spectrum. You say, oh, you know, that looks exactly like what I saw. And then other people would be like, that looks nothing like what I saw. I don't yeah. know. Coming from <laughs> where that's going I'm just from. laughing because this is a conversation I frequently encounter um, with yeah with Bigfoot sightings all over. There's a, a point in that actually. I don't know if this um, impacts upon the type of work that you do. That my point about the Sasquatch types around the world, wherever they're reported, is is let's look at them like they're bears. You know, you have a polar bear, a grizzly bear, black bear, sun bear, moon bear, panda. They're all just bears. Mm -hmm. We know they're bears to look at them, but they look very, very different. And maybe it's the same kind of deal, this type of animal. Yeah, it would only make sense that regional variation would be common, especially if the uh, if the different types of environments are radically different. You're not going to have, like if you look at the Yeti, what that supposedly is, you have the Aron Valley where it's a more like temperate kind of jungle or whatever. And then they supposedly also go up into the snow fields. And that type of creature would have different dietary requirements. It would have to because it'd have different, you know, array of food to pick from. Something that's living in the Pacific Northwest, it'd have to have a totally different diet. And just like in different parts of the world, diet and um, habits and culture, the type of, uh, homes that they have, like where you live, whether it's in a forest or in caves or in modern housing, are going to affect the way your skin, the texture of your skin, the color of your skin, depending on how you're able to um, absorb uh, vitamin D. You know, the yeah. color of your skin is very important. Uh -huh. I know that coming from this part of the world, growing up in Wales, that I have... Um, skin that's predisposed to massive vitamin D absorption. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> As you. Uh, but my wife is from the Middle East, so when we go there, you know, I have skin that I use factor 50 to 90 on uh, as some kind of cover because that's not developed that way, and I can't develop it overnight. You know, humans are a great example of this. Mm -hmm. actually. It is. So, yeah. yeah, so if this creature is in it any way... Um, related to our line which 
would make sense because we're in the same lineage as chimps and gorillas and other primates. You know, basically we're another primate. So <clears throat> it would only make sense that if these things are related to that lineage as well, they would have some of the same predispositions. It's a little different when creatures live outside all the time because they adapt to, you know, uh, environments and amount of sunlight and things differently than humans because humans probably spend, you know, 90% of the time inside because of work and school and everything else, mm -hmm. unless you have an occupation where you're outdoors all the time. And even then, we're adapting with clothing. So our full body is not receiving, you know, the amount of sunlight that an animal would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense to me. Well, I, I, I'm completely okay with that. And uh, you may be aware we do have, well, you are aware, uh, when we spoke about the woodworks before, we do have historic uh, interpretations of the Sasquatch-type animal here and modern interpretations as well, modern sightings, which are very, very interesting. Now, talking about some of the things that you've created, now, the cryptozoology is, is one side of that, but you've also created creatures for many established companies too. Um, have you been commissioned to create anything original for for non-cryptozoological uh, companies? So any of these big companies you've been a model maker for, have you ever had to, to design something that's completely yours for them? Um, not that I can recall off the top of my head. Typically, if I'm contracted to do something for a toy company or a collectible company, they come to you with a concept. Depending on depending on their design process, it may or may not be more or less finished in the concept stage. Sometimes they may have something kind of rough and then want me to kind of fill in the anatomy and things like that, you know, or the way fur lays on the body. But for the most part, like if I'm doing creature stuff for established company it tends to be things like universal monsters you know and those are well established you have mm. they have a particular costume they're always in they have particular makeup they have to match you know in proportions so for the most part the thing that's really so attractive to me about the creature replica situation and some of the creature statues i'm doing for my website is I'm completely unfettered in my creative process. And you could tell from looking at the stuff, I'm still, I'm still just sort of getting my feel for the stuff. Because generally I'm used to work in relatively strict, under relatively strict guidelines for design companies. So majority of what I'm doing are very humanoid creatures. It hasn't really strayed that far, you know, hasn't gotten too crazy yet. So the line of aliens that I'm working on right now, I'm trying to loosen up a little bit, come up with some newer things rather than just, you know, something that just looks like a, a skinny guy <laughs> instead of a <laughs> guy, you know, as you know, if you're comparing like a Sasquatch and an alien gray, they're still very yeah. looking, you know, so, yeah. but, but people respond to things that resemble the human form. If you get yeah. too, if you get too off the beaten path as far as a human correlation with a creature, people start to relate less to it. You know, if they can see something of themselves in it, I think they relate a little better. I think that's why 
probably Sasquatch and the Yeti are so popular and things like werewolves, yeah. vampires, there's a, there's a humanity to it. And I, I think either that makes you more interested in it or in terms of uh, like a fear factor, I think it's scarier if the mon- monster is your scale can get uh-huh. you. You think about Godzilla, you can always think, well, you know, he's over there as long as I keep running that way. Yeah. Brushes all those buildings, <laughs> maybe I can, you know, hightail it up. He can't exactly sneak up on you, really, can exactly. he? I mean, that's true. Yeah, you always know when he's coming. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if it's something that's your size or maybe a little bigger or a little smaller, it uh-huh. could always be around that next corner, you know, like Giger's aliens, things like that, Predator. And do you or think that? Perhaps we, you know, we denote a human-like intelligence to things that look similar to us as well. So that increases fear because being hunted is one thing. Being hunted by intelligence is another. Right. Right. You can, and you can see even the, uh, even the way that Bigfoot enthusiasts attribute human characteristics to the creatures. Mm. You know, it's, and it's a natural thing to do. You know, they characterize them to have the same type of intelligences and all the same concerns as a person. You know, when 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 I've talked to some researchers, they tell me a lot of stuff that is it's no different than what chimps and gorillas do, especially chimps. Chimps have a fairly complicated society. And they've even you know, I've read articles where scientists, quote unquote, scientists say that they believe that chimps are entering the stone age they're actually developing their own tools rather than just using sticks to poke into anthills and things like that you know rather than tool use they're actually making some of their own simple tools and uh so people don't realize that you know monkeys aren't stupid you know there's more to them because people describe all these different things. And it's like, you know what? I know you think that that's a human characteristic, but chimps have yeah. been that for a long time. You know, I read a story about an orangutan in, uh, I don't remember what zoo, but apparently he liked to escape. And he, he would watch the keeper lock the door. And, you know, when they, they'd be in the outside kind of yard uh-huh. area zoo, then they'd go back in through the little door and the enclosure would be locked up. Apparently, he saw that the keeper would always be locking the door and he, he swiped the key or made something similar and he had it under his tongue. So they couldn't uh. understand how he kept getting out. And then they realized he had figured out how to unlock the door and was he was squirreling away at his key like a convict at a prison or something <laughs> like that. So they're, they're way more intelligent than people give him credit for without them actually being human. You know, so well, that's a human ego, though, to think that animals aren't. Most animals are intelligent within their realm, and some have practical intelligence. Look at crows. How tiny is a crow's brain? Crows are clever, They're intelligent animals. And I think for apes, I mean, that's that should be assumed that they can that they can use these skills. I, for a long time, I I always considered. And that when we're describing either the, and this must really make a big difference to you actually when you listen to witness reports, when we're describing something unknown that we've seen, we have to just utilize what's in our mental library to describe that thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same with behavior. 
we can only describe what's in our mental library, which are, are human characteristics, human behaviors. So we relate it to what's most relatable to what we would do, what would I would do in that situation. And therefore, you've got this human creature and it leads to all kinds of other things like mind speak and, and the rest of it that comes off of personal belief systems. You know, how do you, um, how do you muddle through that? Because a lot of the things that you've designed, like the Mothman, like uh, Momo, must, as, as you've pointed out, must come from witness descriptions. How do you muddle through this, um, uh, this mixed up description that comes from somebody describing something they've never seen before. So we hear of, uh, you know, the, when the, uh, some of the Native Americans there in Mexico, when they saw Cortes' ships coming, they just saw mountains, right? Mm -hmm. Because they couldn't recognize that they were ships. Right. So how do you, how do you sort of get to the crux of what they're really saying in their descriptions? Well, I think what, what I try to do is, um, after you've heard a number of stories, you can find commonalities between the stories, and then those become become points that you try to set in your mind as things that are so common that that's probably a more accurate characteristic. Like, like with Sasquatch, it's pretty much all across the boards. People describe humanoid feet, and you know you have the the foot casts, hundreds of foot casts to go by. You know, and so generally speaking, if you have humanoid feet, then your other extremities relate like your hands and feet. There's a certain uh, relation. So if you have five toes, you're going to have five fingers. So you can kind of intuit that. And the vast majority of descriptions <coughs> uh, say that they have human hands just really big. There's a little bit of variation where they say that the thumb is slightly set back on the hand, which is slightly more ape-like, which sort of alludes to that they may not exactly have an opposable thumb. Like if you look at the way chimps and gorillas grab things, they can't grab them quite, this, quite the same way a person does, but it's still pretty effective. So that's, a, that's something you could kind of go back and forth on. It's not consistent because mm -hmm. people really even if they're seeing something where the hand's not quite in the right, the thumb's not quite in the same position as the person, it may not exactly ring a bell with everyone. They're just going to look at it and say, oh, it's five fingers and you had a thumb too, mm. that it's in a different spot. So those two elements become common. Then when you get into proportions, majority of people describe something that's kind of similar to Patty. It's occasionally, especially when you're dealing with Southern Sasquatches, just to stay with, you know, where there's a lot of data like Sasquatch. In the Southern ones, a lot of times people describe something more to more lanky and, uh, yeah. you know, slender muscled. So uh, you can kind of go a little different direction with a Southern one. And they also allude to longer hair and stuff like that, you know, a creature, a monster. But um, so you kind of have to make it a, a uh, generalization maybe the area you're going to pull the the folklore from from mm -hmm. descriptions so you have body type where you you have to make a choice am i going to go with a more southern one that's thinner or a heavier one like a pacific northwest mm -hmm. you get into the face the face is all over the place so that's the area where you could be almost anywhere because you get a lot less descriptions of things with an ape-like nose 
or some. And most people, the first thing they say is the face looked too human, looked very mm. human. Especially if it's a hunter, <clears throat> almost every time, if they had a bead on this thing, the first thing they'll say is, I couldn't shoot it. It looked too much like a person. And even to the fact where it's like, I wasn't sure if it wasn't like some sort of person, you know, homeless person in the woods or something, you know, so it's that close. But the vast majority, it's sort of in between. They can uh -huh. tell it's not a person. Definitely doesn't look like a person, but doesn't exactly feel like an ape. So in those cases, I end up trying to figure out where, where do I, where do I split that difference? And generally, because I'm going to be, I'm doing a lot of it and I'm going to be doing more, I have to set in my mind, well, this is going to be the biological, you know, basis for my Sasquatch. You know, eventually I'm going to do like an almist and all these different things. So along the ways, I can't have them all look like the same thing. They can't all look like a chimp or a person or like just split down the middle. So I got to find different aspects mm -hmm. that that creature <clears throat> in a whole new way. Just like when you look at the uh, the the grand palette of primates in the world, look at animals that are like uh, compared to uh, baboons, compared to capuchin monkeys, and those uh, those monkeys that live in the snow in Japan. Mm -hmm. those, those weird little blue-faced monkeys. Mandrills. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, But there's also the the golden uh, golden something or other monkey. I'm blanking on it now. But they have this strange little pushed up like Michael Jackson. Ah, uh, yeah. Another one you made. They have blue skin and golden. Uh, They're bizarre. They look like something that somebody made up for like a Jim Henson movie. But they're real. Animals. But again, the point being, you would always know you're looking at a mon monkey every right. time, regardless of the speciation, mm -hmm. the, the the difference. And that to me is, is very interesting. And um, I always thought on that point you're making about what people most often present as being human in that larger amount of Sasquatch type sightings, is the separation of of no muzzle, you know, nose and mouth being separate, this flat face instead of a a <laughs> muzzle. And that seems to be a common factor, even in places like Australia with the Yowie and, and here with the Woodwows, which tends to have more of an Almas kind of look to it in most descriptions. Um, it's, it's interesting to me. That mental library thing is always a big push with me. You know, am I describing something correctly because I've never seen it before? Or is this an accurate description of what we're looking at? And you as an artist, sculptor especially would have a really good handle on that I, I think that's that's a perfect explanation now talking about more personal sides to this type of work um i'm just wondering obviously you said a lot of things clicked into place for your career here you know you kind of fell into the sculpting and then things kind of clicked into place but it's not simply because you were lucky, clearly you work hard, you do good work. So how would you describe your work ethic? I'm pretty obsessive about it. <clears throat> I work probably 15, 16 hours a day at this stuff. Oh, wow. And I pretty much always have when I was first learning. And <clears throat> and even now I still, I'm constantly studying anatomy and drapery and things like that. And since I got into all the cryptozoology stuff, I spend a lot of time 
studying animals as well because I'm always kind of looking for that <clears throat> correl correlative or whatever. I can't even say the word, but the correlation yeah. data that uh -huh. give me something that will give me enough uh, vocabulary to create some of these hybrid creatures. You know, <clears throat> like if, if I'm working on a lizard man type thing, I need to have a certain amount of information about lizards and snakes. Because again, there's not just one kind, you know. Mm -hmm. Same way with the Sasquatch thing and various types of cryptic uh, primates, things like that. And anything else that I approach, and I'm doing a lot of winged creatures for one of our successive lines. So it's going to encompass, you know, Mothman, which obviously I've done already, but <clears throat> so an action figure variant of that. Um, the Cornwall's Owlman, which will mean bird wings. And then a Jersey Devil, so he'll have bat wings. And the way I approach all this stuff is when I'm working on, like when I'm working on bat wings, I've done a fair amount of bat sculpture just because I'm into bats. And I study the, the anatomy of those wings. And when you're all of a sudden going to slap wings on a creature that already has arms, then you're basically putting a second set of arms on. You have to think about how you're going to interpret that anatomy. Because generally in biology, Creatures either have wings or they have arms. They don't have both. So you have to decide how you're going to make that make sense. I mean, obviously with monsters, they don't necessarily have to. But when you put um, anything onto a human body that doesn't grow there normally on a human, then there has to be a corresponding muscle structure and bone structure that's going to move those extraneous limbs. So I try to look at everything that way. And it's that gives me my jumping off point so that these things don't just look like something you slap together, like a Lego or something like that, you know? Would you say that for the um, for the fan or for the purchase of, of such material, if it doesn't make sense anatomically, if you can't justify it, they won't believe it. They won't buy it. I'd like to think that. I don't, I don't think they get that deep into it. Okay. <laughs> that's... That's more for me to make sense of it, and my. So this is part of your work ethic. You have yeah. to. You can't really rest, even if it's good enough for the people you know. They'll like it. You can't rest until you like it. Right. It's got to make sense to me, uh -huh. and I want to approach even the fantastic creatures. I want to approach them as if they were, if I was able to go to the zoo and see them, what would they look like? Mm -hmm. You have to. It's a whole different thing if you get into things that are completely supernatural. Yeah, talking about ghosts and demons and things, then I think you could get a little more phantasmagorical with them and loose, and it's forgivable. But I think if you're trying to establish zoology as a branch of zoology as really just unknown animals, not like creepy monsters that no one's ever seen and are totally fake. But if you want them to be considered biological animals, then you have to think about them in terms of how they could actually function. You know, everything that you that I do would be based on, you know, if he lives in this type of environment, what kind of feet would he have? And eats this type of food, what would his muscle mass be like? You know, would he have claws or would he have fingernails like a primate? You know, all those things, if it's, if they're more of a predator, they would tend to have claws, you know, but there are animals like people that were the ultimate predator, uh -huh. also assisted by technology. 
you kind of um you kind of look into the biological backstory basically which is that's great i think that gives longevity to whatever you do because you've justified it biologically it helps it to make sense for me and it also it also gives me a design aesthetic you know rather than just kind of winging it because what ends up happening if you're making monsters you start doing the same things over and over again if you don't have a jumping off point if you don't have a logic to it because eventually every monster has pointed ears they got bat wings they got claws and everything starts to look similar you know and if you really want to separate things like our first line was all furry creatures you know with to just dive into it and do whatever they could have all ended up looking the same whereas really you know we had two different types of primates so i had to figure out how to separate those two i mean it was a pretty easy separation because me and jeff had talked about from the beginning that the yeti should really be more of a pop culture representation rather than what we knew was a more realistic interpretation based on witness event uh witness uh testimony yeah because there are really very few witness testimony by sherpas and you know englishmen over there that um the thing ever had white fur there are yeah but they tend to be more orangutanish and vast majority aren't like the gigantic zute creatures like we did but they tend to be the the metes which are more like the between five and six foot creatures that have reddish brown fur or black fur so but the the pop culture <clears throat> interpretation was that these creatures would be like a snow hare or a white fox or a polar bear mm-hmm. and that their natural fur coloring would match their environment you know for either being a predator or to escape predators mm-hmm. and uh even the proportions of our yeti are blown out like gigantic hands and forearms and you know the snarling mouth with the fangs and things like yeah. that we wanted something really cool and monstrous so that's the one creature and and the horror hound obviously is not a cryptic creature that's just the mascot for a horror hound magazine so that's completely a comic book creature uh-huh. um, with the yeti we specifically there uh diverged from witness testimony to just do a cool yeti because realistically as much support as we've gotten from the cryptozoology for what we're doing the vast the vast uh vast amount of support we really need is from the action figure if we did something with red fur and called it a yeti they'd be like what the hell this looks nothing yeah yeah i was just gonna say nobody's gonna thank you for a a realistic real-to-life as right. described yeti this thing is too big yeah. for you to make it your own uh, I, I would buy one sure but that'd be one of oh, the so would I. <laughs> so would I. You know, like the, yeah when I, I was talking to lauren coleman at uh the one of the ohio bigfoot conference yeah. shows and talked to him about the toys a little bit and he's like well you know yetis don't have white fur and i was like <laughs> i was like yeah i know <laughs> but um you know, it leaves it open for us to do a variation of a different Yeti uh-huh. with different fur, you know. Um, but once we've established the one that everyone yeah. is comfortable with, the, the Bumble style Yeti, you know. The Rudolph's teacher's style. edition. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, yeah. So, now, uh, 
I'm, I'm just wondering on, on on that point actually. Like you talked about the um, the types of people who would buy these figurines and um, and having to please that audience too. But doing a lot of cryptozoology work yourself in the conferences and with some movie makers like Seth, talking to people like Lauren, I I also wonder if there's a if you think there's a kind of fan bridge between cryptozoology, the paranormal, UFOs, and and comic book lovers and you know and action figure lovers, is there a complete crossover there, or would you say that most of these people people buying your work have sort of a foot in at least you know, two or three of these different fields? I think there's a fair amount of crossover. Where cryptozoology toys are kind of a niche within a niche, mm-hmm. you know, like we get. A lot of cryptozoology people, but a lot of people into that don't necessarily collect toys or even get the point of it. But we have seemed to have brought on board a lot of people that were like, well, they didn't really get the whole toy thing, but they're like, oh, it'd be cool to have a little toy of an action figure, a Sasquatch, if they're totally into Because I see people post their their little Bigfoot museums, like in their basement and stuff, and they've always got one of our figures on the shelf, which is super cool. And on the side... You got the toy collector, and a lot of those guys tend to be more into like if they're into monsters, tends to be Universal monsters or some of the, the signature types like Leatherface and Jason. But then their the predominant amount of their money goes into figures based on video games and uh, superhero stuff. And there's mm-hmm. the stuff in between, which is like Aliens and Predator. There's a lot of that. But um, <clears throat> sort of where we fall is this weird little zone right in between those two groups. You get some from the crypto zoo group and you get some from the action figure group. And as we go along, we're trying to convert the people on the crypto side into more of a toy collector. Mm-hmm. We're trying to do stuff on the toy side to convert action figure collectors um, into more of a cryptozoology collector. You know, because from their perspective, it's like, well, how can I customize this to work with He-Man? Or, uh, uh, you know, is this going to look and look cool in my collection with, you know, these other creatures or, you know, in a diorama with a bunch of Marvel Legends, like uh, superheroes fighting like Yeti or something like that. Uh, so we're sort of walking this, trying to find, trying to find an audience that really is big pieces of a couple of different disparate groups, you know. It's interesting to me to think that a lot of the people buying your figurines actually could that could be the only figurine that they own. Completely. And that's an interesting that's 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 a whole new world. So um personally I do see some people coming over to that. Now I have tons of animal and dinosaur figurines in the house some of them are behind me but they're not mine they belong to the children my daughters in fact i have two daughters and they just love it they love all these different animals and everything gets crossed over from your um your bigfoot figurine to a t-rex to a unicorn to a polar bear you know they're just all playing together in fact i think the oldest one had a rabbit chasing t-rex across the, the shelf the other day and T-Rex is saying, don't eat me, I'm not made of chocolate. <laughs> and she's going, nom, 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 nom. And that was perfectly plausible to a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a rabbit might eat a T-Rex. But you know, this is that's a different world completely. That's a childlike world. For an adult, somebody in their 40s, you know, who doesn't live in the stereotypical mom's basement, 
type of environment. Um, I saw them, and I, I first encountered yours at the, again at the conference when I was speaking to Terence Muncy, and I thought, wow, look at this thing. This is amazing. And similarly, a lot of the reports I read, North American reports, Pacific Northwest reports, seem to, to match that figure in, uh, which is it's it's amazing to be able to do that and to get people to convert. It's a big challenge, and I I think it's um, it's working now. Coming off of that, actually, I'm just wondering. You know, as a forty something myself, and a, a big fan of that Harryhausen type of material when mm -hmm. I was growing up. Um, do you think that 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 kind of stuff for people of my age, at least anyway, and older, was, was a bit of a gateway drug to genres like your own? What are your thoughts on Ray, and, and, and were there any other pioneers around that time for sculpting, for model making and animation that you like, that you think are a little unsung? Is there somebody in your mind that stands out that, that didn't get the attention that they deserve? Well, I'm not, not really up on specific names other than Harryhausen, but I watched all that stuff growing up, so uh -huh. to a certain degree, I'm, uh, quite a bit of it must have sunk in because <laughs> of where I ended up. You know, as I remember that all the Sinbad movies with the oh, yeah. sewing the dragon's teeth and all the skeletons pop out of the ground and the little homunculus that they had on one of the ships that they built. That's the one with Tom Baker, I think. Excellent one. Yeah, <laughs> that, that stuff was really cool. I mean, this, I guess, making action figures is kind of an offshoot of that. You know, you're just making something more permanent rather than a clay sculpture or a foam sculpture yeah. with an armature in it that you're going to use for one movie. You're trying to make it last a little longer as a PVC plastic figure. That makes sense to me. And um, more of a personal question. Uh, now, I, I'm married, as, as you know, I have two children. And um, I can't, I'm constantly researching these things and saying to my wife, they're real, you know, they're really real <laughs> things. And she says to me in the most <clears throat> direct wifey way, Andy, I know they're real, but I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, how does your wife feel about what you do? Or have you been lucky enough to marry a fellow monster lover? Um, she's, my wife's not into horror at all. Like she can watch some sci-fi stuff. She'll sit through all the superhero stuff with me, but, um, not into horror and on the whole cryptozoology thing like bigfoot and everything she thinks is actually absolutely absurd you know <laughs> he, she humors me about it and i needle about needle her about it constantly about <laughs> well you know someday we'll be going to the bronx zoo to see an exhibit yeah. with, with these guys and he's like yeah you, you keep telling yourself that yeah <laughs> so well, listen you know if you've ever been to a museum and uh, and seen um a giant squid in formaldehyde you've seen the kraken Mm -hmm. And a hundred years ago, that was that was an impossibility. So I I think you're completely right there. Now, just before we go, you know, I've really enjoyed picking your brains and all this stuff. Um, just tell us about about a few other projects you've got in the works, and and do you have any news on your Woodwose model? You know, is that due for release at some point in the future? I'm sure a lot of the British listeners uh, and Bigfoot fans over here would love to see that. Yeah. Um that's definitely still in the works um basically the way the way i've had to set things up with our factory work is we get we get a better price factory wise if we bring them a bunch of stuff at the same time 
And some characters, like I have a whole line of Bigfoot variations, which the Woodwows is part of that variation. Line. So if I can take those all to the factory at the same time, we get a better break on that price than if we just take one figure at a time. And you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars for a, a line of figures. Uh -huh. So basically, as I've gotten into, and I recently started, like not that recently, but I started working on the Alien line as well. So I'm essentially working on about three and a half lines of figures all at the same time, okay. <laughs> which mold we can repurpose and mapping everything out. So I have about yeah. six Bigfoot variations that'll be in a line that just, it's going to be kind of an in-between line. So our next line will be our aliens, where there's a number of alien gray variations with different types of heads, different mm -hmm. types of outer space gear. And then some Anunnaki. I'm working on a Nephilim that'll be a larger figure. Oh, wow. And uh, then the, the Bigfoot wave will be kind of in between that alien line and the next line, which is predominantly winged creatures. You know, like I mentioned, the uh, Jersey Devil, the Mothman, the Cornwall's Owlman. Uh, what else is in there? And, and each of these will have variations too, different heads, different wing types, body accessories. And we're also doing a Krampus in that line. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah, so for Christmas. It's, it's all it's all over the place. There's a lot of stuff. And I guess that's what the people who follow our work get frustrated because they don't understand why it's not coming out right away. The problem with it is, is that the front end development takes a long time. And while I develop this stuff, I'm like booked for like the next year and a half doing superheroes. Uh -huh. So I've got Marvel and DC stuff coming out my ears for like the next year and a half. So I have to keep uh -huh. that rolling so I can afford to do this other stuff. So, uh, and then add to that, that <laughs> typically once all our prototypes are at the factory in China, it takes between six and nine months for the factory to produce. it. So you're always working at least like a year out. You know, so, and we've been rethinking the, the first, the first series was completely self-funded. Jeff, uh, Jeff, Nick and Craig laid out all the money for the first series. So the next series we're going to run, you know, like, uh, Seth does with the STM stuff, uh -huh. we're going to run Kickstarters. Oh, the, wow. you know, so really the, the thing that's been holding the thing up is me, you know, it's takes me a long time to develop the stuff because. You know, I explained to you my process. This stuff has to yeah. all make sense. It all has to work together. And then technically it's all got to be factory ready. And it usually means going back and forth with them. You know, I show them the joints I want to put into a figure. They explain which things will work, which won't pick out the type of PVC plastic for each piece to hopefully work out all the bugs for <clears throat> technical problems like breakage, and things like that, which is inherent with any toy line mm -hmm. uh, but i guess the the short answer for anybody interested is that everything is still going forward it's just uh it's a lot of work and it's just not ready for prime time yet so but, but it oh. will be and I, I i you know hearing that you're doing 15 hours a day and, and what you're doing in those 15 hours it seems like it's not enough but you gotta sleep sometime right so um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I wish you every every single piece of luck with it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing them when they come out. I definitely will be 
displaying a woodworks on my shelf, and I suggest everybody else does, as many, as well as the many, many other figures that you have. Uh, just before we go, where can people find you, uh, Jean, if they want to buy your, your, your products? And I know you've got the new self-assemble and, and de- uh, painting kits uh, for some of your creatures at the moment as well. So where can we go and, and where can we buy them? Uh, well, our Creature Replica figures are on CreatureReplica.com. Uh, I also have my own website, which is GeneStGeneStudios.com, where I have the statues. And I'm in the process of putting up, like, a lot of other cryptozoology-oriented stuff, stickers, um, prints, and some wall plaques and things like that. And I just started doing little blogs. I'm trying to get that rolling, like, with my own personal little research projects, and I'll usually do some sketches. I've wanted to do that for a long time, so okay. that's at my site. And then um, for any further contact, like uh, myself self and studio are both on Instagram and uh, Facebook, I'm easy to find. Also, our Creature Replica site usually has a lot of stuff on it, our Facebook page. So pretty easy to find us. If you find one, you find all. And then... Awesome. Uh, People can always contact me through there if they just want to shoot the breeze about this nonsense. I'm always up for that. It's about any of the toys. You know, I'm pretty much always up for making contact with people who have an interest. Well, I, I can I can affirm that, and um, I'm not quite sure how you're doing it at the moment. You seem to be a very busy man. Gene, thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I really look forward to seeing all of this stuff, and hopefully have you back on in the future if you're up for it, you know, when, when these new tour lines come out. Cool. Yeah, I'm always up for talking about this stuff. I appreciate the uh, the invite. I mean, I I've heard you on a couple of other shows. I heard you on Lo- Rowan Lobo's show. Oh yeah, I love that's, that guy. I think that's where I first kind of got into your stuff and started reading your blog. So. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I mean, those those two dudes, they are amazing. We had the most amazing chat about uh, capes for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> On the first show that we did, and that's kind of like a running thing with us. Oh no, no, we were constantly comparing cape, mm-hmm. <laughs> cape purchases. I, I'm not just for anybody listening out there. I'm not wearing a cape. I don't own a cape um, because I think if you have a cape, you need a leotard to go with that thing, and I just don't look good in a leotard anymore. I think you need so, a higher purpose for a cape. <laughs> yeah, you need a higher purpose. I don't have one personally just for monsters and uh, it's only me and a few others that care about that jim thanks for coming on uh, well, we, i'll um keep abreast of all your work and I, I just you know i'm excited by it and just looking into your room there it looks full of care and joy and uh, what a joy to be so busy well i appreciate it again man thanks for bringing me on and uh okay happy to talk to you anytime yeah take care buddy Bye.